don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Good morning. You're very welcome to Second Captain Saturday. Owen and Murph here with you for the next hour. Hi, Kieran. Hey there, Owen. Oh, do you want to break the bad news to our wonderful Radio 1 listeners, or will I do it? No, yeah, it's for you to do it. I'm sorry. Okay, the bad news is that this is the final episode of the current series of Second Captain Saturday. But allow me to apply some dressing to that gaping wound in your heart, dear listener. The good news is that we're ending the series with a bang this morning. Today's guest is the creative genius behind Planksty, the greatest band in traditional Irish music history. After growing up as a child actor in London, he took the opposite journey to many in the 1960s when he moved to Dublin to make his name. Always a curious curator of music, he's credited with bringing an Eastern European sound to Ireland in the 1970s, and he's still going as strong as ever in 2018. And if all that is not enough, we're reliably informed that this man absolutely loves his sport. We're honoured to have the legendary Andy Irvine on the show today. And we hear he's brought his mandola, Murph. I'm pretty sure that's the first guest who's brought a mandola along. Hopefully it's not the last time I get to say we that have, Well, we, we haven't frisked all of our uh, guests <laughs> that have come in the door, but I'm pretty sure none of them were packing a, a hidden mandola. <laughs> so we'll be getting some tunes to play out the series today yeah, too. amazing. It's just as well Andy loves the sport because the competition at the top of the 2018 second captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person leaderboard has been fierce and he'll need to bring his A game to make a late charge for the title. Let's get a full comprehensive 2018 This Sporting Life leaderboard with just one guest to go. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Yeah, Sashing B has been top of the tree for a long, long time now on 78 points. But as we go into the final show of the series, maybe it's time to take stock here on to the Swamp Dwellers first, and poor Paul Howard is dead last on 72 points. He scored a headed goal wearing a pair of glasses as a child. Cute, but clearly not cute enough. Kevin Barry, one of Ireland's foremost authors, could only fumble his way to 73 points, and that was even with the help of some added bonus points for exceptional sports report reading. His pool shark background in Cork failing to impress the judges. The judges being you. Yes. Porrick O'Brien, Channel 4 news hand, ran proudly in the under-eight Garbally community games wearing burgundy slacks and a Superman t-shirt, good enough for 74 points, a similar total to that scored by London underage hurling sensation Dermot O'Leary. Yeah. Dermot received bonus points for having a shamrock tattooed on his arse, a secret the X-Factor producers have been hiding for years. Who says we don't break stories on this show on... David Baddiel got 75 points, mainly for writing Football's Coming Home. We promised 10 extra points if England actually brought football home during the World Cup, but no dice there, I'm afraid. Also on 75 points, it's only bloody Hollywood's own Gabriel Byrne, who we also learned is Ireland's foremost Mihola Murherthig impersonator. Well, 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 what a goal. Yeah. Cody Keenan, speechwriter to Barack Obama, was last week's guest and turned out to be a high school football hero. And despite some points deducted for being a high school jock, go nerds, he's on 76 (laughs) points. And then it's into the podium places. Mead's pool hall hustler and Liverpool legend's goal adorer Tommy Turnin is on 76.5 points. That's a good score. He survived the pool slot transition from 10p to 20p games and lives to currently enjoy third place. With her bionic leg, Sharon Horgan was the queen of North Leinster cross-country scene in the 1980s whilst defeating all comers in the turkey-plucking game. She's in second place on 77 points, but hanging on at the top on. is Ashling Revenge for the Famine B, whose choice of wrestling nickname and, of course, exploits inside the wrestling ring looks set to see her crowned this year's greatest non-sports person, sports person Andy Irvine, 
is the last challenge standing in her way on. Those are the numbers Andy will be shooting for this morning. If you're on Twitter at the moment, you'll find us at Second Captains. To start us off, we're going to play something a little bit different from the norm. Woody Guthrie was Andy's musical hero and a fascinating musician in his own right, acknowledged as one of the greatest songwriters and folk singers in American history with a real political edge and a massive influence on other great musicians such as Dylan and Springsteen. So for this morning's guest, Andy Irvine, this is Woody Guthrie from 1944 and a recording he made during World War II, a song called Tear the Fascists Down. This is Second Captain Saturday. There's a great and a bloody fight around this whole world tonight. In the battle, the bombs and shrapnel rain. Hitler told the world around he would tear our union down. But our union's gonna break them slavery chains. And our union's gonna break them slavery chains. If it takes them to tear the fascists down. Tear the Fascists Down by Woody Guthrie, and that's especially for this morning's guest on Second Captain Saturday. Andy Irvine, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. Woody Guthrie was a bit of a bit of a big deal for you. Oh, Woody Guthrie was uh, well. He was kind of my he was my entry to 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 real life, really. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In what in what way? Well, I, you know, I was kind of searching for music. I I I always loved music, but I. Uh, I was still looking for the music that I really would uh, get into when I heard Woody when I was about 15. And uh, I took on board almost everything, uh, everything of Woody's. I, I, well, I practiced his uh, guitar style. I, played, I learned to play the harmonica upside down like he had. Um, I was pretty good in, in my day at an Oklahoma accent. Right. And, uh, and I took on board all his, his political ideas as well. They all seemed absolutely right. Everything about Woody seemed just exactly what I wanted to wow. be. So yeah. was, it, was it a case that, was, was he totally different to anything you'd heard before or, or just an exaggerated version of the stuff that you No, he was, he was totally different. Totally different I mean, yeah. I, I'd, uh, I, can't, I got into music through uh, Lonnie Donegan in the, the skiffle period and that the... Uh, uh, the mid fifties, and uh, that's how I learned about Woody. I saw his name on a Lonnie Donegan EP, mm-hmm. and it said uh, Woody Guthrie, and I thought, "Wow, interesting name." I was I was always into names, and uh, I discovered uh, I, very little in those days. The world was a, was a, a huge place, much bigger than it is now. So to find out who Woody Guthrie was 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 uh, a real task. And eventually, I just did discover that he was in hospital in uh, New Jersey with a, a, a an illness or a disease or whatever you want to call it that he had inherited from his mother, called Huntington's disease. It's called these days. And um, I used to write to him there when he was in hospital. And uh, he, you know, part of Huntington's disease is uh, shake all over shakes. You know, so he wasn't able to to write by the time I discovered him. But uh, the people who took him out at uh, weekends would, would write to me and tell me all about him and how what he was up to. And uh, <laughs> Wow, that, that's amazing. You were effectively having a correspondence with your all-time hero. Exactly. And more remarkably, they, they knocked down Greystone Park. Uh, it was actually a mental hospital because they didn't know, in those days, they didn't know what to do with somebody like that. Mm. And uh, they discovered all my letters that I'd written to Woody. This is kind of uh, 
50 years later. Wow. Yeah, unbelievable. What sort of stuff were you asking him? Sorry, what what kind of stuff were you writing to him as a... I was just telling, I I was just, it was just chat, you know, (laughs) a a whole bunch of lies. I was aggrandizing myself a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Just to go back to the, the letters that were discovered, did... Did they track you down and send you the letters back, or how did no, you find that out? No, somebody told me that they had been dis- they'd been discovered and they'd been lodged in the Woody Guthrie archive. Wow, okay, uh, yeah. which was then in upstate New York, and it's now actually in his hometown of Okima. No, it's in Tulsa, Oklahoma, home state of, of Woody's. Yeah, is it true, Andy, that you received the ultimate honor and had your name printed? in the Woody Guthrie newsletter. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, I, I don't know how you... You've obviously been studying my life, but, uh, <laughs> well, that was something else, yes. I mean, the, the Woody Guthrie new, newsletter was a, a mimeographed uh, two-page thing that would come out every irregularly, and it was sent to me as being uh, uh, on the mailing list. And one day it said uh, Woody would like to thank, and it had Pete Seeger and Pete Seeger's wife, Toshi, and... Jack Elliott and his wife June, all the, all these people, Oscar Brand, I mean thousands of them, and uh, and I looked on kind of a little bit longingly. I'd, I I had no reason to expect that I would be among this uh, this exalted crew, but right at the very end it said, "And to Andy from Woody personally." Wow. Yeah. Did you read Chronicles by Bob Dylan? Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. It, it's amazing to me that. I might as well just come out and say two of my musical idols were in contact with Woody Guthrie at the same time because Dylan, when he first came to New York, he went out and hung out with, for anyone who hasn't read Chronicles, it's an amazing book. The first few chapters are about him leaving his hometown, going to New York and seeking out Woody Guthrie and kind of getting frustrated at times by how in and out of sort of life Woody Guthrie was even at that stage but he was just so massively inspired by Guthrie that to spend some time in his company was was enough yeah 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 well uh, yes he actually of course he I, I never met Woody uh, personally face to face which which Bob Dylan did but uh, that was a couple of years after me I was there first. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, said, you said that he inter- influenced you politically as well as musically. In what well, way? Well, yes. I mean, his songs, a lot, a lot of his the songs, well, most of the songs he wrote had some, had, had a kind of left-wing um, sort of bent field, to them, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and he was, like, Woody was, Woody was um, a big union man, a big trade union man. And, and, and I thought, yes, I agree with that. So I... I, I um, I've 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 been a union man myself most most of my life, and uh, that and all uh, and generally his politics I I I took on board, you know, and uh, and I've followed that ever since. It's funny that idea of a first discovery of a passion, you know, well, not that you first discovered, but that you really got it. Like for me, it would have been Ray Houghton heading the ball into the English net back in in Euro '88. I, uh, I, I was eight years of age, and I'd watched football up until then. And I'm sure I was. I must have been interested in it if I was sitting there watching this game. But ball goes in, everyone's going crazy, countries going mad, and I'm just thinking, there's still. Yeah, a- I, I get, I get this now. And I, I, you think you know even then, unless something goes drastically wrong, you're gonna be, you're always gonna be passionate about this thing. Yeah, there's still a transformative moment, even if you were into it even before something like that happens in your life. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, are we talking about football or politics? Both. <laughs> well, any, Both, any of this yeah. well, music, you know, 
you sometimes find something or something happens early on and I guess I guess that stays with you ideally. But anyway, moving on to the present day and next month, Andy, you're going to be performing the 1976 album Andy Irvine and Paul Brady at the Borgosh Energy Theatre and elsewhere. This is a really iconic album that is loved by a lot of people. Was it a particularly important one for you at the time? Where were you guys at in 1976? We recorded it in, uh, I think, July 76. Uh, we had only been together since, um, as a duo, since about February 1976. I'm not sure that we expected, we certainly didn't know it was going to be the album that it turned out to be, I mean, that have the, the kind of lasting popularity that it has had. So, you know, we were just, we were just doing our thing and, and uh, doing it to the best of our ability. And um, as luck would have it, or whatever, as genius would have it, <laughs> it turned out to be a, a, a winner. Yeah. yeah, it turned out that you're playing it again all these years later. Yeah. See, so, so Planksy had just split up for people who mightn't be aware of all the history. This was, I heard you describe it before as saying it would have been Planksy's fourth album. Yes, I'm not sure I ever said that. I might have passed that on uh, secondhand. Lots of people did say that. And it is true to, to, to a certain extent because some of the numbers we, we did record, uh, not all that many, but a couple of them uh, had been in the repertoire of Planksty when Paul was in it. Paul, Paul joined in September 1974 right. and we had until December 75. So he, he was in the band for uh, about 15 months. The way you describe it now, Andy, it sounds like nothing too dramatic. Planksty breaks up, you just keep doing what you're doing with, with somebody else. Is that the way it is? Is that the way it always was for you? S- something ends, you got to keep going, you got to make your living, you got to do your thing? Well, the, yes, basically that was yeah. it, yeah. But I mean, the, the thing about Planksty breaking up was that we'd all had enough at that point because it, it wasn't just uh, as bands are these days, a tour on when it's on and not on when it's not on. This was a full-time occupation. We were we were in that bloody van week in, week out. And uh, eventually we had no time to get anything new together because we were just traveling traveling so much and playing in, in Europe. So when, when uh, God bless him, when, when Liam, uh, may he rest in peace, called the meeting, uh, we knew what it was about. And as soon as he said, uh, I'd like to leave the band, we all... Chorus, yes, me too. Me too. <laughs> really, everyone was wait, waiting to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the, the 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 first eighteen months of of Planksty was uh, was divine. It was we hadn't expected the the success. We hadn't expected the fame. Uh, we loved it because because it was unexpected. Especially, I mean, there is a recording of of the Cork gig on the first tour where we uh, supported Donovan, mm. where. After every number, the audience just goes berserk. And all you can hear from people on the stage is this hysterical giggling. (laughs) (laughs) And the humor, you know, like Christy and Donald especially, were were always funny. Uh, on, on stage as well. On as stage off. as yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were watching, you were watching some stuff this morning, and it, it just seems like the interplay. Was amazing. Like, we're honestly sitting there laughing, looking at these old YouTube clips. It seemed yeah, like yeah. it's fun to watch. So it was obviously fun. Well, Christy, Christy could be hysterically funny, and and Donald was a pretty good prompter to him. Like, you know. <laughs> it was great. It was. I I I've often said that those first eighteen months of Planksty were were 
One of the happiest times of my life, certainly, yeah. You, you, you mentioned Liam earlier on, Liam O'Flynn, who sadly passed away earlier this year. Has Liam's death had you thinking about those, about about the old days, about the times that you've shared together over the years? Yes, of course. And and uh, we are, we um, Donald, me in the band Usher's Island, and Christy uh, as a soloist, and I hope we'll get together, are playing, are, are part of a, a concert in the, the National Concert Hall on the 28th of October as a tribute to Liam. And that'll be a very moving experience. He was described in the uh, in the Irish Times obituary. Well, the headline was about the passing of a, a flawless master of Illin pipes. Is, is that about right? Oh yeah. Um, well, Liam was was a, uh, was very much a traditionalist, and uh, as a piper, he was he, he was really I think he was without parallel in the the traditional mode. Mm. I mean, there, there's a lot of pipers these days who are brilliant uh, technically and, and, and excellent music, really, really lovely. But it has kind of, um, even piping moves on a little bit. Uh, he was right in the forefront of uh, traditional piping and, and without, without parallel, yeah. yeah. It's funny because yeah. we, we came across a quote from that Christie gave back in 1972 to uh, Melody Maker magazine where he said, we don't want to lower Liam's standards. We don't want him to do anything that would go against his musical ideals. Which I thought was a funny phrase for one band member to talk about another band member. Well, it was uh, quite correct. I mean, Liam would, be, would have been the first person to say, uh, I don't think that's, that's not my idea of where we should be. And Planksy was always a, a, a veto band. What, what like, do you mean by a veto band? I mean, if anybody didn't like something, that was the end of it. It was never a kind of, uh, I mean, there were four of us, and it was never, uh, well, three of us are for this and one is against. It was, if one was against, we, we all were against really? it. Really? Because yeah. some people would think that a healthier way of doing, of doing things would be to trash it out a little bit. Why don't you like this? And, and everyone talking around. One, if one person felt strongly enough, you guys trusted his musical yeah. instincts enough yeah, to say that's, yeah. that's why he feels it's not going to happen. That's right, yeah. yeah. Was, we were all for one, one for all. <laughs> Your path to that point, Andy, you came over to Dublin from London in the 60s? Yeah. Now, I imagine most people were going the other way at that stage, everyone going over from Ireland to either get a job or broaden their horizons I don't know how many people are necessarily coming from London to Ireland. How, how did you find that? Because it seems as though you actually f- maybe found your niche over here that oh, you wouldn't yeah. have had over there. Well, I was an actor in, in London. I was on, the, in 1960, 61, uh, I was on 62, I was on the BBC Rep. And in radio at that time, there were an awful lot of Irish people. There was uh, Louis McNeese, for instance, uh, uh, Eric Ewens was a, was a great playwright. There was Dominic Bean. Most I discovered kind of alcohol about this time as well. So to go to the George pub, um, you would be surrounded by these people. And I, like one of my memories of that time is is uh, standing listening to to Louis talking and and uh, uh, others of of his ilk, and not really understanding a word that we're saying because it was incredibly intellectual conversation. <laughs> But I was standing there, and uh, and I was part of the company, and eventually I I uh, I became I became good friends with Louis. It was most unfortunate that he died when he did die, because uh, 
And I was looking forward to uh, that friendship continuing. But I, I used to go out with the secretary. No, no, I didn't. That's a lie, Andy. I never went out with the secretary. I always wanted to go out with the secretary. <laughs> <laughs> you can rewrite history at this, <laughs> yes. at this point in time. Just remove, yeah, yeah. But uh, we, used to, we used to kind of mess around in his office, and, uh, and he'd come in sometimes, and I'd be absolutely mortified. He'd be playing, playing with a tennis ball in his office in the office of the great poet, Louis McNeese. And, uh, so, oh, I'm very sorry, Louis. I'm just, I'm just going. I'm just going. But, uh, but that, was, that was one of the reasons that I, uh, I decided to head to Dublin. Well, you might want to explain that because it sounds like a pretty cool scene you're involved in. Well, it was over. over. That, that's quite nice. It was over. Okay, yeah, right, it was right. over. Like the, the contract was at the most for two years. Mm. And I'd had enough, you know. I mean, it, it, in radio, if you were an actor... Any actors you'd met would say, God, Andy, you know, the first thing you have to do is get out of the bloody rep, which was true because it was a dead end. But it was a lovely dead end. I, and, the, and, the, and the actors and actresses on the rep were lovely. I, 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 I miss them. I'm, you know, I'm amazed that uh, they're nearly all dead now. I can't believe that it was 56 years ago. You know, it's like uh, sometimes I feel that I'll, I'll be heading back and going into to Studio 5A and, and playing second newsboy. <laughs> <laughs> had you been something of a child star? Well, I'd, I'd had my moments as a child actor, yeah. I was in a, my mother was an actress and my sister was an actress. And, and, uh, and I got a, a, the part of a, a small boy when I was nine years old in a film which is very rare to be very rare these days called a tale of five cities and uh one of the main reasons why it it might have should have been remembered better was that it was Gina Lola Brigida's first film you'd have to be over a certain age listeners to know who remember who Gina Lola Well you remember Brigida refusing was. to know you know your movies I have to confess to zero knowledge well, here so. Yes I know that she was an Italian actress wasn't she Yes she was Yeah yes. maybe Irish listeners might know her best as the woman that Go on. Uh, Jimmy the Lips Fagan named his saxophone after in The Commitments Is that right In Alan Parker's oh. Commitments I'm nearly certain that he named his saxophone Gina after Gina Lola Good Lord. Yeah, well, yeah, I never knew that. <laughs> so you were in a movie with this with this actress? Well, I, yes, she was in Italy, unfortunately, and I was in London. So we never met. <laughs> and I was nine years old. I don't think she'd been very interested in me. Anyway. <laughs> but uh, yes, I, so I did that. And, and that led on to when I was 13, I was offered a part, like in the new TV channel, ITV, was just starting up then, 1955. I was offered the part of a kid in a children's soap called Round at the Redways. It was a terrible moment. It must have been a terrible moment for my parents because I was doing very well at school. And there was this kind of 50-50. I can't remember who voted for what, but, uh, of course, I wanted to be an actor. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was for 10 years. And I... I played the lead in a TV play called The Magpies, which was a, a short from, adapted from a short story by Henry James. And I got rave reviews in the papers. Wow. And, uh, and I thought, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm headed for, for stardom. But now, now, you had left before the, before the but, because I'm loving this part of your life. Um, you left school. Is that what you're saying? When you were I like left that school at the right. age of 13 to, to pursue the life of a professional actor. And... Uh, Unfortunately, after after this success, 
nothing came up for a 14 year old boy in that period okay. you know that that was the like a lot of a lot of one's life is governed by luck good and bad and that was uh, bad luck at the time there was no nothing came up for me at that point you said that nothing came up but isn't there a story around a movie called Room at the Top? Oh, yeah. Which was yeah, an Oscar-nominated yeah. movie that you had, had some involvement with? Yes, uh, yeah. I, I had a nice little part in that with Lawrence Harvey. And, uh, well, what I remember about that was I, I was kind of nervous. And uh, the director was Jack Clayton, who's kind of uh, went on to, to fame. and But uh, I can remember we, did, we, we had to do the scene a couple of times because... He had found out that I'd put my hand in the petty cash and taken out some money. And uh, he said kind of, well, did you take it? No answer. Did you take it? Yes, I did. But I, I kept coming in on the first one, you know. Did you take it? Yes. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so I did, I did that about twice, and, and, and I could see uh, Mr. Harvey was getting a little bit irritated by this. But eventually we did the scene, and, uh, and he, as he left the, the set, he said, uh, well done, well done, Andrew, he said, very good. But I went to the premiere at the Leicester Square Theatre uh, some months later with my mother, and we'd gone in kind of uh, with our heads held high, batting away autograph hunters. <laughs> and and uh, I was enjoying the film, and my mother leaned over and said, when's your part? And I said, shh. And I then realized that my part had passed. Oh, no, it no, It had no. been cut. No. Yeah. Did the dream die that day? I, I always held a grudge against the studio that they never said, sorry, your scene's been cut. Mm. And the other thing is that one of the only, I am seen in the background a bit. And when I, the only thing that's left of me is when Lawrence Harvey gets married, I bring the champagne to him. But I do it uh, with a mien, which was meant to be great respect, love, and thanks for getting me out of the problem yes, of stealing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it looks like kind of, I don't know what it looks like, but it looks like kind of a, a small boy who doesn't know how to act. <laughs> totally out of context. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah well, it's a, a hell of a story to tell all these years later. This is fascinating stuff, Andy, and more to come from you after the break. Just before that, Murph, I've got a message in for you. Go on. I must admit I'm impressed by Kieran knowing who Gina Lolo Brigida is. And he is correct in saying that in the commitments, Joey the Lips called his trumpet after her. It's just that Murph called him Jimmy the Lips no. and said it was a saxophone. I'm sorry, so close I'm, and yet so far, Murph. I'm operating under a lot of pressure here, dear listener, but thank you for your comments. <laughs> <laughs> Helpful as they are. Yes. We'll be back to discuss the sporting life of the legendary Andy Irvine next on Second Captain Saturday. RTE Radio 1. Second captain, first captain, whatever. We've got one of the all-time legends of Irish traditional music in with us for the final episode of the current series of Second Captain Saturday. Andy Irvine has been telling us all about the amazing times he's had with Planksteen, not to mention a pretty impressive career as a child actor. So between acting and music, Andy, did you have any time to get into sport growing up? I was always into sport from uh, when I discovered, I discovered sport when I was about uh, seven or eight. And I played it, and I, I, I still am. I'm, I'm a mad sportsman. 
I mean, I think you've got a, some of this information from Paddy Glacken, have you not? Well, listen, we've got a bit. bit <laughs> I, I, we've got our various sources. <laughs> but I certainly would. Uh, I would. Um, I think I would equal him almost in love for sport. And that's saying something because Paddy is... Uh, yeah. Well, the out. world's biggest Dublin fan. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you said you went to boarding school earlier on. Yeah. Did you find boarding school tough? Was well, I did because I went, actually, I, I, I went to boarding school at the age of three and a half. And uh, there's no point in talking about that further because I rem- remember nothing till it was about nine. Right. Uh, and it was awful. Like, um, But the one great thing was that you could get 11 people together or 15 people together and you could play a game. Of course. And uh, I loved that, you know. I loved football mostly or football, what games were you Football in the, the winter season, rugby in the spring season and cricket in the summer season. How did you find the rugby? Uh, well, I was a tiny boy <laughs> and, uh, of course, I was on the wing. Mm. And uh, at, at that age, like uh, uh, 11, the disparity between male... Uh, human beings is it can be absolutely vast and i do i remember a boy who played for a school called Coddington Croft whose name was Barlow and he must have weighed about uh, 14 stone and he was huge and he was he was usually their fullback and so I'd come up against him, and I remember him tackling me into touch once. And I travelled about 15 yards from the touchline <laughs> on my face. <laughs> Did you say that was the winter game at boarding school? Uh, well, it was in the spring term. In, okay, like, yeah, uh, yeah. And no, I'm just thinking, in, in the depths of winter, it should be illegal to have a child play on the wing in rugby, yeah. waiting for a ball that's never Cruel and right. unusual yeah, punishment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was quite good at kicking for touch, <laughs> <laughs> which I did whenever I got the ball. The cricket, the cricket's an interesting one because I've seen you tweeting about cricket. It's this has been a lifelong passion for you. Oh yes, a lifelong uh, passion, absolutely. Yes, I, well, I was I was born in St John's Wood, just round the corner from Lord's Cricket Ground. Oh yeah, the home of cricket, as it yep. calls itself. So I mean, any all summers from the age of uh, nine. I would spend them uh, at Lords, and I fashioned myself after a, a great, a great Middlesex batsman that not many people would remember now, called Jack Robertson. Right, and uh, and I could play all the shots. The trouble, my trouble playing cricket later in life was that I was too afraid of getting out. So I, I. I'd, I rarely, I rarely played the beautiful shots which I could play. Of course, that were part of your repertoire. You yeah. just didn't always pull them sort out. Sort of a Jeffrey Boycott type but, mindset. Well, I'd right? hate to be compared to him in, in, in almost <laughs> any of his... Uh... <laughs> yes, I, I, I was... I mean, even when I played for Marion when I was uh, over 50, I was kind of well-known... What they would say about me in, in kind mm. of uh, the, the, the annuals would be... Uh, just the kind of man you'd like coming in at number five after the first four wickets for falling for very little, like you know. And Do I was, I was good at that. I was good at uh, holding my end up. Yeah, you'd steady the ship. Yes, so to speak. But I, I, I was more inclined to 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 nerdle, as they used to call it, to play kind of late cuts and and leg glances than uh, beautiful cover drives. Growing mm. up around Lords is a funny one, and maybe I don't know how much that's going to chime with a lot of a lot of Irish people. It might be familiar. Ireland now play Test cricket, and Ireland will be playing in Lords. But the the home of cricket is 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 the way people describe it. And I think English people talk about this place in sort of hushed, reverential tones. <laughs> Did it feel like that to you, or was it just just a nice place to watch a bit of sport? Well, I I was always uh, no. I would have a good. Uh, I would have a few things to say about that because yeah. 
I always went on my own, and and I've always been, apart from my son, who I uh, inducted into mm-hmm. Everton. We'll come to that later. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always watched sport as a, as a very personal head thing. You know, I was never one standing there shouting "Come on, Everton" or anything like that. But Lords, when I first used to go there, it was inhabited by. Uh, Brigadiers and businessmen and and uh, a fairly fairly not not the kind of people that uh, Woody Guthrie or me would have particularly got on <laughs> right, with. Yeah. And uh, and now you know when you see people in, sitting in the pavilion or, or actually I can go into the pavilion because I'm a member of Middlesex, but uh, you have to wear you have to wear uh, a jacket and a shirt and a tie and trousers that are not jeans and shoes that are not runners. You know, it's uh, it disturbs a large part of my my uh, general feelings. So there's a bit of a, a bit of nonsense around the whole thing. Yeah, yes, and all these old buffers in their bacon and egg MCC ties, like you know, it's yeah. Yeah, mm. it, I think that that is the main thing that Irish people think about cricket in England. That it would be very much a sport for the toffs, you know, uh, and that sort of attitude would you maybe have trickled down into the Irish consciousness. But of course, cricket is not an upper-class sport when it comes to the players who represent England. I mean, for all like all the great northern cricketers were by no means Victorian amateurs or anything like that. That they, You know, that, that it's not half as upper-class in the playing staff, at least, as Irish people maybe think. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't long before my um, venture into cricket as a, as a small boy the players and the the gentlemen would enter from a different uh, enter the enter the field of play from yes. a different gate, <laughs> you know. So there was there was that certainly in the thirties and and uh, the fixture at Lords was called gentlemen versus players, you know. And, mm. But as you say, the the players and even then and now we're not we're not in any way kind of uh, upper class. I came into Middlesex, becoming a supporter of Middlesex when when people like Dennis Compton were were playing, and and Dennis Compton was from Hendon, from a, a poor family, like you know. Some people who who only know the word cricket yeah. would have that attitude you're speaking of, but I don't think anybody who who plays cricket thinks in 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 terms of uh, class yeah. at all. Andy still gets vexed by the game, Murph. Came across a tweet during the summer, day two, Middlesex versus Warwickshire. Owen Morgan was a waste of time. And what the hell was Holden up to? <laughs> so it still exercises your passions, even if you're not shouting from the yeah, stands. It's a lot say. more like my Twitter account. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everton. Why, why, well, you, hang on just yeah, for yeah, you. On that. I have to say, I played with Ed Joyce when, at Merion when he was about 15. Really? <laughs> right. Well, that's going to get you a couple of bonus points maybe when, when Murph tots up here. I think maybe two games. Lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Everton. How did you end up supporting them? Well, again, the name. Um, right. You know, I, I, I really can't remember, but I, I, I do remember uh, knowing all the names of the, of the main football teams in England, and, and Everton just leapt out at me. Uh, why it did, I don't know, because um, I might easily have been attracted to the word Liverpool. But I bloody well wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and what a relief that must have been for you over the last 60 odd years. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Do you get to games? Are you as committed as that? Um, I don't get over that often. 
You know, it's like work. Work usually happens at a weekend if it's happening, and uh, and football happens at a weekend usually too if it's happening. So I I just ah oh, I don't know I. I I couldn't understand it last season under Kuman. Like you know, I mean, these were the same players who'd been playing really well the year before, and they were suddenly playing like rubbish, and and then getting Allardyce in was perhaps not not the worst move because he did save them from relegation, but his his uh, way of playing was not at all attractive, and we are hoping for for better things now because. Uh, I think Marco is has the right attitude, and I think, and we've got all these new players who have not featured yet because they've niggled with injuries. Once they get the um, leaking of goals from set pieces under control, I think uh, we might see a good team. Okay, we're almost there. We can rank your sporting life in a second, but I don't think we've gotten a specific highlight yet. Although playing with Ed Joyce, an international cricketer, is pretty pretty <laughs> high up there. What, what's your What's your sporting highlight from your own endeavours? Well. The thing I can never forget is when I was about, uh, I would have been 12, I think. Uh, we were playing, I, I, I played for the school the school team, prep school team. In, in which sport? Football. Oh, yeah. football, okay, yeah. great, yeah. And uh, we had a right winger called uh, Jeremy Alexander. And I I don't know, I've, I've never, all the boys I went to school with, uh, most of them were local, money kind of... Handful, two, two, a double handful of, of boarders, and I never really um, found out anything about them in later life. I know there was a there was a, a sports correspondent in the Times, I think, called Jeremy Alexander, but I can't believe that was our Jeremy. <laughs> but he uh, he was great. He played on the right wing. He was great at crossing the ball. He sent over this cross from a, a long way out. I was kind of in an inside left position. And uh, and I saw it coming over. And I thought, "This is my moment of glory," yeah. and I headed it into the net from ah. about ten yards. And and uh, and as my teammates raced up to me, I lay flat on the on the <laughs> pitch, saying, "God, that's the best goal I've ever scored." <laughs> and uh, and it was the best goal I ever scored. It's like Charlie George. The FA Cup final of 71 lying flat on the ground, that uh, famous image. Pretty good celebration, I have to say. Well, no, I, I, they were on me before I could get up. <laughs> I've got some bad news, though, before you rank Andy's highlight, Murph. We've done some research on this goal, this famous link-up between Jeremy Alexander and Andy Irvine. Go on. The Irvine-Alexander dream team, as it was known <laughs> in those days. We have been informed that there were murmurings of a possible offside. Yes, that Andy here was in an offside position. The I team... don't remember anybody making a complaint and, uh, and the referee would have been from their school because it was an away game. Right. And uh, he blew the whistle and pointed to the centre circle. There might have been a hint of... Was there, was there a there hint of might have been side? a hint of it, but I, I've, I've never considered it. <laughs> Andy, you've hopefully gone past the stage where you care what the critics think, but this is one review you're going to have to sit here and listen to because it is now time for Murph to rank this sporting life. I'm looking forward to this one of Andy Irvine. You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have, then? People like me, I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. A 
Okay, Andy, please bear with us because it's time for us now to rank your all-time sporting highlight, identify the sports person that we feel most closely resembles your sporting personality and then come up with a score out of 100 via our in no way completely ridiculous scoring process <laughs> to discover if you will become this year's greatest non-sports person sports person. The current leader uh, for this season is Ashling B on 78 points. So your sporting highlight, Ed Joyce aside, appears to have been a piece of footballing artistry unseen on the boarding school fields of England before or since. And we have to give due credit to the skill involved. However, uh, an investigation into this goal uh, has led us to believe that this goal should never have stood. Uh, the blatant illegality at the centre of this offside goal highlight cannot go unchecked. In many ways, it reminds me of no one more than Diego Maradona's Hand of God goal <laughs> in Mexico in 1986. Your football career really was basically Maradona's performance that day in microcosm. The blatant cheating at the heart of the Hand of God for his first and the sheer blinding genius of his second goal. So taking all that into account, cheating on the one hand, acts of genius on the other, we're going to give Andy Irvine 77 points. That's respectable. Enough for joint second place for this series. Andy, this has been your sporting life. Well, thank you very much indeed. Andy is going to stick with us to play out the show, but for now, thanks so much. And a round of applause, please, for the brilliant Andy Irvine. never not going to play them really the incredible sound of our guests Andy Irvine on vocals and bazooki Liam O'Flynn on Ill and Pipes Christy Moore on Bowron and Donal Looney also on bazooki the legendary Planksty from 1972 with a favourite of ours here on Second Captains The Blacksmith that mm. recording by the way is a live television performance on the Late Late Show and if we insist no matter what people have planned for the weekend they take four or five minutes out of their day at some stage to check this out on YouTube immediately. It's all there. Unbelievable performance going back to 1972. Yeah. Uh, ridiculous. Uh, handlebar, moustaches, uh, deadly hair, uh, polo necks. Oh, the look, yeah. The um, looks incredible. Christy Moore's... Uh, the the belated appearance of Christy Moore's Baron is about as close as anything Ireland has to the bit when the drums... when uh, John Bonham's drums kick in uh, in Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. <laughs> That's basically the level of icon we're dealing with. Uh, we have it up on Twitter already if people want to. Yeah, and there's a tiny, tiny little glimpse of Gable right at the very end of the clip <laughs> uh, when even Gable is looking unbelievably cool. So everyone comes out of this clip with credit. As amazing as his life story is, and as brilliantly as he told it, this is a cruel, unforgiving crucible here on Second Captains. And Andy Irvine has to settle for joint second spot in the greatest non sports person sports person competition. Let's have a quick final rundown of the 2018 table, please, Murph. Paul Howard bottom on 72. He got a, he did at least get a mention on every single one of our shows. Though. Thanks so again for that. coming on, Paul, and giving us your time. <laughs> <laughs> on 74 points, Porrick O'Brien and Dermot O'Leary on 75. David Badil and Gabriel Byrne. Cody Keenan is next on 76 points. Tommy Tiernan on 76 and a half points. Outside the medals, though, it's Sharon Horgan and Andy Irvine joint second on 77 points with Ashling B, our winner for this season, on 78 points. So congratulations yeah, what to an you, Ashling. That's pretty much it for this series of Second Captain Saturday. Thanks so much for all your kind messages about the show. We've had an absolute ball doing it, and we look forward to being back here soon. In the meantime, you can tune into the Daily Show's broadcast around the world from our own studios. The Second Captain's World Service is independent of member-led broadcasting, and you can listen to what we do. You can join us, indeed, at secondcaptains.com. We'd love to have you along. Thanks to Mark Horgan and Simon Hick for producing the series. Killian Down for all his research. Marion Finucane is coming right up. Thanks, Murph. 
Thanks, Owen. Thank you so much for listening and for getting involved in the show. And a final thank you to all the great guests who gave us their time over the last few months, including Andy Irvine, who's rejoined us and will do us the great honour of playing us out this morning. What a way to play out the series. Andy, what have you got well, for us? Well, it's a song I, I wrote myself. Uh, it's on my latest album, and it's called Here's a Health to Every Minor Lad. I don't know why I've written so many songs about minors. Uh, because my father certainly was not one, but, uh, but I have, and here it goes. Brilliant. Fair made these words I heard her sing. The miner lives a hard life, never knowing what's in store. May providence protect him and keep hardship from his door. So fill your glasses up, let the toast go merrily round. Here's a help to every miner lad that works down underground. She sang about the union men who fought for better pay. Escape the poverty that dogged them night and day. And then the verse she did disperse of men from Erin's Isle. How they had travelled round this world for many's a weary mile. So fill your glasses up, let the toast go merrily round. Here's a help to every minor lad that works down on the ground. Some from Cushendon and some from Carrick Town And more who strayed from Bantry Bay, that place of great renown She said they were the finest that ever you could behold For they could turn the hardest rock to silver or fine gold So fill your glasses up, let the toast go merrily round Here's a help to every minor lad that works down on the ground Ago, they worked out in West Cork, and when the copper seam ran out, they sailed for old New York. And out in Pennsylvania, they dug the anthracite, and they joined the Molly Maguires for to fight for what was right. So fill your glasses up, let the toast go merrily round. Here's a help to every minor lad that works down underground. For they joined that mighty union called the IWW. But standing up for miners' rights that cost them all their jobs And they couldn't save Frank Little from that vigilante mob So fill your glasses up, let the toast go merrily round Here's a help to every miner lad that works down Stave about the brave coal miners from South Wales, how they were paid short measure on the crooked wage scales. 
she told about my Bevan in 1945. He set up the National Coal Board and stood by the miner's side. So fill your glasses up, let the toast go merrily round. Here's a hint to every miner lad that works down on the ground. And finally the miner's strike from 1984. And tears ran down her hollow cheeks and she could sing no more. That ruthless iron lady in her song she featured not May her name be never mentioned, but her deeds be never forgot So fill your glasses up, let the toast go merrily round Here's a hint to every minor lad that works down underground Fill your glasses up, let the toast go merrily round Here's a hint to every minor lad